If you want to open your Bible to Psalm 23, that's where we will be tonight. Uh, last week we covered Psalm 22, and uh, so tonight we're covering Psalm 23, if I can speak, that would be really great. And then next week we'll cover Psalm 24. And as I mentioned last week, this psalm, these three psalms have been kind of historically grouped together. Some people have called them the shepherd psalms. Uh, one commentator said that they, Psalm 22 spoke of the past, Psalm 23 speaks of the present, and Psalm 24 speaks of the future. Another commentator said Psalm 22 is the, the servant shepherd, Psalm 23 is the good shepherd, and Psalm 24 is the ruling shepherd. And in this series, I'm talking about Christ as our priest in Psalm 22, our prophet is what we'll be talking about tonight out of Psalm 23, and then next week we'll cover Christ as king in Psalm 24. So let's open by reading Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So certainly one of the most famous psalms, I'm not going to ask you to do so, but if you can recite it, would you raise your hand? So a lot of us, a lot of us can recite that one, and for good reason. It's a great psalm. Um, I think I think it was Spurgeon who said, "If Psalm 119 is like the the giant of the Psalms, like the tallest tree of the Psalms, Psalm 23 is the flowers surrounding it. It's it's just a beautiful psalm and uh, famous for good reason. So let's take a look. Uh, verse one starts: "The Lord is my shepherd." And Christ is the shepherd, and we are his sheep. We think of John 10, where Christ says he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. So we could even talk about Christ as being priest in the way that he shepherds his, his people. He lays down his life for the sheep. Um, and this, this theme of shepherd shepherding and the sheep is throughout Scripture. We see this in when Saul was anointed. He was told that he was to be the shepherd of the sheep of Israel. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, but also in other prophets, they complained that the shepherds of Israel had led the sheep astray. David himself, the, the one who penned this psalm, was a shepherd. And no doubt that had some influence on the inspiration of this as he was thinking about the Lord and what he had done for him. And then, of course, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. So if, if the Lord is our shepherd, what exactly does a shepherd do? That would be a good question to ask. So I'm glad I asked it. Well, he rules, he guides, he feeds, and he protects his sheep. The other question is, what do sheep do? Not very much. No, I'm just kidding. They follow the shepherd, they obey him, they love him, and they trust him. So then we have to ask, well, how do we know that we are sheep? 
If Christ is a shepherd, then how do we know that we are sheep? Well, do we hear his voice? Do we obey his voice? Do we follow him? If we have set our hearts on the Lord, on following him, then we are his sheep. Remember, you know, T2 just finished up a series on 1 John. And so we can think about that. What does 1 John say about the people of God? What is the character of the people of God? Well, if we say that we love him, then we're his people, right? That's not what 1 John says. If we say we love him and we don't obey his commands, then that means that we are a liar. It's not just words that make us his people. It's obedience to his commands. If we say we love God and yet we hate our brother, then again, we are a liar and his word is not in us. If we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. But if we keep his commands, then we know, we truly know that we love God. So obedience is the litmus test of our own faith. It's not the words we say. It's not our church attendance. It's do we actually keep his commands? Do we strive to keep his commands? The psalmist continues, I shall not want. So Christ as our shepherd and prophet knows exactly how to provide for us. David expresses this confidence. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everything that we need is given to us by Christ in his word. As the word is proclaimed to us every week, every Lord's Day, on Wednesdays, and on those special days that we gather, what we need is given to us in the proclaimed word. We are, in fact, fed by Christ himself when his word is faithfully proclaimed. That is how now he executes the office of the prophet. It's, just, it's through the faithful proclaiming of the gospel. And so what this means for us is that we should not merely attend worship services. We should be fully engaged in worship services. Imagine, if you will, you are invited to someone's house for dinner. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Hueys, although I've had great meals at other people's houses too, but the Hueys particularly stand out in my mind. And uh, so imagine you're going to the Huey's house and they've got, or anyone's house really, it doesn't have to be them. But, uh, imagine you get there and the table's set really nicely and you can smell the food and it smells really good and they've got good drinks, everything that you like, everything looks amazing. You sit down at the table and everyone starts eating and you just sit there doing nothing. You just kind of, you look at the food, but you don't taste it. You don't make a point to smell it or, or even really look at it that much. You don't drink any of the drinks. You just sit there and you wonder, when is this going to be over so I can go home? And that's sometimes the way we treat our worship services, isn't it? Is that we're not really fully engaged in what we're doing. We're just going through the motions. We're not actually feeding on the word. We're just watching other people eat and not benefiting from it. So you may come faithfully to church but if you're not engaged in what you're doing, you're not actually being fed. We're trying to feed you, but you're refusing it. And just as an aside, the people who come and don't actually feed are the ones who are most likely to complain that the food wasn't prepared well. Don't be this person. If it's your habit to come and not be engaged, it's something to repent of. Consider also that 
if Christ provides for you richly, which he does, everything that you need, then the promises of the world are completely empty. The temptation of money, of prestige, of a good name, of worldly comfort, all these things are in vain. Nothing but the food given by the good shepherd, by our prophet, can satisfy our souls. And Christ, as I already said in his word, gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. The question for us, the question is not, does Christ provide for us? The question is, do we believe that, and are we actually feeding on that word? Part of the prophetic office was to proclaim the word of God to the people. And in fact, we might actually say that this, is, this was and continues to be the primary task of the prophet, to bring God's word to the people. Now, the prophets did four, four things. They would receive immediate revelation from God. They would perform miracles to confirm that their doctrine was actually true. They would foretell future events. But the primary function was to bring God's word to the people. Now, growing up, I always thought that a prophet, the primary thing a prophet does was foretell future events. But when you actually read the prophecies, that's not, not really the case. Most of the time, they're just telling people, this is what God's word said, and you need to repent. And this is what Christ does for us, even to this day. When we gather as his sheep, he protects us, he feeds us, he guides us. And that's what he is said to do throughout the rest of the psalm. So let's look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. This idea of lying down in a green pasture is, it carries the idea of, of relief, especially relief from the heat of the sun. He doesn't make us dry, lie down in parched, dry places that are, that are hard to be in. He knows where the green pastures are, and in his goodness, he leads us to them. Now, we do go through trials. And later we'll see in the psalm, uh, both from, we'll see from the psalm and from experience, that the places which seemed to us to be the most difficult are frequently the places where we actually are fed the most, where we, we receive the most spiritual nourishment from the Lord. So we ought to be thankful for those times. Even in the hardest of times, we ought to be thankful because the Lord is providing for us. He knows what we need, and he provides it for us. On a similar token, when we are not going through trials, when we're not suffering, it's a blessing from God, and we often take that for granted. And what happens in those times is we become unthankful. And so that's probably something that we all need to repent of, is when things are going well, we're not nearly thankful enough as we ought to be. The psalm continues, he leads me beside the still waters. He shows us the way and leads us. He leads us, and so we must follow him. A sheep that strays away from its shepherd is not safe. His sheep, from what I have read and understand, actually don't have any natural defenses. Okay. Now, you might think to yourself, yes, but they've got all that wool, and so they could easily conceal a firearm. But you forget they don't have opposable thumbs, so they really don't have any natural defenses. My wife is just, like, embarrassed. <laughs> Rightfully so. 
there's actually only two things that a sheep can do if they find themselves in danger. The first one is run away. And I immediately think of Monty Python. <laughs> run away. And the second thing they can do is gather with other sheep and to try to protect themselves in the flock. This is you and I, okay? We don't have any natural defenses. We don't have any natural defenses against the attacks of the world, against the attacks of the flesh, or against the devil. If we stray away from the shepherd, the only thing we can expect is difficulties because we don't have a way to defend ourselves. And isn't it interesting that we're told two particular things? We are told to flee from sin, and we are told to not neglect gathering together. Do not forsake the gathering together, especially on the Lord's Day. Now he says, he leads me beside the still waters. Apparently sheep are not too keen on drinking from fast flowing water. There's no joke in here, okay? They, they don't like fast running water. In fact, it's dangerous for them to go into fast moving water because they will drown pretty easily. They prefer to drink from still water. And so this picture of the shepherd guiding the sheep to the still water shows his care for those sheep. It shows that he knows his sheep, that they won't drink if they go to a fast-running stream. So he brings them to the still waters so that they, they, they're not afraid and so that they can be nourished. And again, repeating myself, this is how Christ feeds us. He brings us to the still waters of the word so that we can feed and grow. And again, this is what the prophets were sent to do. They were sent to lead the people to the quiet waters so that they could feed by proclaiming the word to them. And that's what Christ continues to do. Every day we meet together, every Wednesday, every Sunday we meet together. That is what Christ is doing through the person preaching. When the gospel is is faithfully proclaimed, it is Christ speaking to you through that person. And this is why we ought to never give up meeting together. I don't know anybody personally who's ever stopped going to church who has remained faithful in their walk. I don't know anybody. And this is also why, if you remember, it took extremely exceptional circumstances for us as the session to ever cancel a worship service. We, I think we did one week at the very beginning of COVID. Was that one week, Scott? It, it was one, maybe two. I don't remember. But it took a lot for us to cancel that. And then we didn't stop meeting together for long, did we? Meeting together to hear God's word proclaimed is probably more important than we even realize. And those who stop or think it's optional are putting their souls at risk. Um, I read a, uh, a book about World War II uh, because I was kidnapped and they said I had to read a book about World War II to get away. Uh, no, I'm just a nerd, actually. So I read this book about World War II and... This one story stuck out to me, and these American GIs are in this city. I don't remember all the details, so it might have been Germany, it might have been France, I'm not sure. But this city had been heavily bombed. It's not necessarily a place you wanted to be in the middle of World War II, but it was a Sunday, and these American GIs just were stunned that they saw this family dressed in their Sunday clothes going to church. In the middle of World War II, those people understood how important it was to be at church. And uh, just something to think about. 
If people can get up on a Sunday morning during World War II and go to church, I think we could probably do it every Sunday as well. Verse 3 says, He restores my soul. Christ preached in such a way that hearts were changed. He taught with authority. He didn't teach like the scribes did. Remember Matthew 7.29 says, The people were astonished at his preaching. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They were astonished at his preaching because he taught with authority and not like the scribes. He preached with zeal. John 2.17 says, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. His preaching was accompanied by divine power to change hearts. He preached with wisdom so that nobody could contradict him. How many times do we read that the Pharisees came to Christ and they tried to trap him in his words and he ended up trapping them in their words? He preached to the heart and he illuminated it, he warmed it, he converted it, and he sanctified it. And today when the gospel is preached, Christ does exactly the same thing. He illuminates us, he warms us, he converts the unconverted, and he sanctifies his people. So he restores our soul in that way. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The prophets, as I've already said, were sent to guide the people back to the Lord. That was the greatest part of their ministry. Moses is called the, not in these words, but he is called the greatest of all the prophets. There was no other like Moses after him. And what did he do? He performed miracles in Egypt. He led the people out of bondage. And then he began to lead them into the promised land. He didn't make it himself, but he began to lead them. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. He brings us out of bondage, and he brings us into the promised land. And that's a powerful picture of what Christ, our prophet, does for us. We come to verse 4 now, which says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, everyone will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There is no walking around the valley of the shadow of death. There is only walking through the valley. Notice, too, that it's a walk. It's not a run through the valley of the shadow of death. If I was traveling and I saw a sign that said, you are now entering the valley of the shadow of death, I would either turn around or run as fast as I could to get through it. But this is a walk. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not a crawl. It's not a slog. It's just a walk because the Lord is with us. Notice it's not the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. And this is because death for the Christian can do no evil to us. There is no substantial evil in a Christian dying. That is our final victory over death when we die. And every true believer will go through this. They will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and they will make it through to the other side. And it's God's presence that makes walking through that valley possible. And not only possible, but it makes it a comfortable journey through. Why do I say it's comfortable? Because he says next, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's two things in life that terrify people more than anything. Uh, One of them is death, and one of them is public speaking. We don't have any promises about public speaking, but we do have promises about death. And that that is that the Lord is with us in that time. Maybe the scariest thing we'll ever go through is death, right? 
we're, I'm speaking humanly. That's the scariest thing we'll probably go through. And yet David says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the Middle East, apparently, shepherds have to, they have to continually be moving the sheep from place to place. They can't stay in one place because of diseases and because of grass that they have to eat. So they move them from one place to another. And this makes sheep nervous. They, they get into places that are unfamiliar and they get nervous. So what does the shepherd do? The shepherd will actually walk through the middle of the flock, around the flock, and speak to the sheep because the sheep know his voice and because it calms them when they hear his voice. It's just a beautiful picture of what Christ does for his people when they're going through trials and suffering. We fear no evil as well because, like Paul, we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Right? Where is your victory? And what's more, we can also say that nothing, not even death, will separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and the list goes on, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. A Christian lacks nothing because Christ provides for his people and abundantly. The table's prepared before him and prepared abundantly in front of his enemies. There's no lack of good thing for God's people. Whatever your circumstances may be, there is no lack of good. In Romans 8, Paul tells us in verse 28, we all know, All things work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Beloved, the Lord cannot withhold any good thing from you that you need. He can't, because he has already given you Christ, and he's promised every good thing that you need, he is going to give to you freely. That's something you can count on. All the sufferings in the world cannot dissuade us from this fact. Indeed, Paul says, he, he says this, and then immediately following, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that he does not promise ease for God's people. He doesn't say there will be no tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. He just says that those things can't separate us from the love of Christ. The prosperity gospel is a massive lie from the pit of hell. If you've bought into any part of it, reread what I just read, Romans 8. He doesn't promise a life of ease. In fact, he promises that we will be persecuted for our faith. But then he also goes on in the psalm. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And this teaches us that the Christian life, whether it's an easy road or a hard road is a blessed life. 
It won't be easy and pain-free, but he does promise that God will be with us in all circumstances. Listen to a couple testimonies uh, from, from two Scottish covenanters. If you know anything about the Scot- Scottish covenanters, they were uh, fiercely persecuted for their faith, and many of them were martyred uh, in horrible ways. Uh, one was named was John Cochran. He was a shoemaker, uh, not, a, not a prestigious guy, just a common shoemaker. And he was martyred. He left a wife and six children behind. And uh, before he died, he left this testimony. He said, That was no discouragement to me, for when the storm blew the hardest, the smiles of my Lord were the sweetest. It is a matter of rejoicing unto me to think how my Lord hath passed by many a tall cedar and hath laid his love upon a poor bramble bush, the life of me. He didn't think much of himself, right? He's just a shoemaker. He's just a Christian. And yet he rejoices that he gets to be a martyr for the name of Christ. He didn't pity himself. He didn't complain that he was leaving his wife and kids behind. He didn't complain that his life was so difficult. He actually rejoiced, like so many martyrs did, that, they, that God would actually choose them to show forth the glory of Christ in their death. Or we have another martyr who left his wife and children behind, and he said this, Now I commend my soul to God, who hath preserved me hitherto, and who unexpectedly singled me out to suffer for him, who am the unworthiest of all sinners. And I never thought he should have highly privileged me as to account me worthy to give a testimony for him. That was Edward Marshall. So we see, if we think that God's goodness is based on circumstances, we are wrong. We are sadly mistaken about that. If our brothers and sisters who went before us died rejoicing that they got to give a testimony for Christ, it's a rebuke to us when we're discouraged because our car broke down or because we have a disease, or because we didn't get promoted, or something like that. And then the psalm concludes with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Looking forward to eternity gives us peace, even in the most difficult circumstances. That is how Christ himself went through the cross, as he looked for the joy that was set before him. And that's how the martyrs endured their crosses, their own deaths, is that they looked beyond the pain and suffering and saw that they would be with the Lord forever. Setting our affections on anything less than Christ, anything less than being with Christ in eternity, is not worthy of a Christian. Remember what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If you are then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting, Uh, Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It would be good to have those words going through our heads more often. So what exactly does this psalm teach us beyond what I've already said? First, We need to hear the prophet. We need to hear Christ. 
Matthew 17, 5 exhorts us, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Second, we need to consider how Christ shepherds us as a prophet. He shepherds us gently, kindly, wisely, and to suit us in whatever circumstances and needs we have. Thirdly, if you're unsaved, listen to the voice of the shepherd and heed it. Fourth, obey. Christian, obey the voice of the prophet, the good shepherd, who laid down his own life for you. Fifthly, ask him to teach you. Psalm 25, 4 through 5 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Sixth, and finally, be careful. Be careful and diligent to apply what you've learned to your life. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to wait on him to teach us. And then we need to make sure that we're obeying the things that he's teaching us. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for Christ, uh, the good shepherd, our prophet. We thank you that you guide us, you lead us, you sanctify us, you protect us. You lead us by the still waters so that we can drink in safety. You lead us to green pastures where we find rest. And uh, we ask you, Lord, to work in our hearts that we would love Christ more, that we would love your word more, that we would spend more time meditating on it, memorizing it, thinking about it through the day, feeding on it as we ought to. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us, your sheep, from the attacks of Satan, protect us from our own sinful inclinations. We pray that you would sanctify us by your word tonight. We ask you this all in Christ's name. Amen.